0: Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship, where we get to talk horses. We're your hosts. I'm Renee Hare.
1: And I'm John Hare.
0: Thanks for listening and sharing our
1: horsemanship journey. On today's show, we'll have horsewoman Crystal Kelly. Crystal sent me an email from England and said that she had had an exciting life with horses. She is the only FEI level two show jumping coach in the USA, and she wrote that she had experience with show jumpers, endurance horses, and polo horses. But what fascinated us is that she worked in Egypt in 2011 during the revolution, and she's also been in Zambia, Bhutan, and many other foreign places, and we thought we'd like to learn more about her adventure.
0: Crystal even rode in the Mongolian Derby in 2014, and she had her very own secret for picking her horses.
2: Yeah, so actually, I was very (laughs) clever. When I went to Mongolia, I went there a few days early, and I hung around the city. I just kind of wandered around, and I met some local Mongolian people, and the first thing that I asked them, I said, you need to tell me how to say, in Mongolian, Portemur and Madaban. Okay, these are the only words I know how to say in Mongolian. What it means is, Give me your fastest horse.
1: Crystal has a lot of stories to tell, and the interview went a little bit long. So instead of talking about our horses, we're going to go right to our interview with Crystal Kelly from England. On today's show, we have Crystal Kelly from what she was originally from California. She's in England now. So we're talking to her from across the pond. Good morning, Crystal. How are you doing?
2: Good morning. I'm doing good. Thanks.
1: Although what? It's an evening there. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, it's it's getting dark now.
1: Okay, <laughs> tea time, as they say.
2: Exactly. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, we got your email, and you told us about the life you had with horses, and we were just fascinated by it. And one of the things that you mentioned in the email was that you were an
0: FEI level two instructor.
2: Yes, yes, I'm an FEI level two coach. It's coach. for show jumping and for dressage coach, instructor, it's the same. So right now, there are no other level two coaches in the entire of USA. So I'm the only one that has this.
0: Yeah, that amazed me. What makes it so difficult to achieve that?
2: You know, I was pretty shocked as well. I (laughs) I had no idea that I would be the only one. And then I kind of went on the kind of FEI website, and I saw all the names of the other Kind of level two people. And yeah, I'm the only one from the USA. So Mm -hmm. that was pretty surprising. I bet. But basically, what it is in Europe, you know, the FEI is kind of the main thing. So I know in America we have a lot of FEI competitions, but we don't really have any kind of organized equestrian schools or um, something where you can go and get kind of certified that says, hey, I'm, you know, I've coached students at this level, or I've done, you know, these kind of um, trainings with horses and and my students. So we don't really have kind of something that's that's giving that. So what the FEI did was, they organized this kind of curriculum. And they said, Okay, people are going to come for these tests, you know, over the course of a week, let's say, So I went, uh, the first time I did my FEI level one, I went to Zambia of all places, Mm -hmm. and then level two I did in Greece. And so they tested me for a week. So they're not teaching me how to be a coach, let's say, because I've already been doing this for years, but they were sort of testing my knowledge and skill. At the end, they kind of evaluate me, and then I have to produce lesson plans based on their curriculum. I had to do my lesson plans, which was quite a lot of work. And then I had to submit it to the Federation. They have to review all of the lesson plans that I did. And then the tutor who kind of oversaw me had to pass me. So I had to do kind of a, you know, a proven test, kind of, I had to physically coach some lessons and he had to evaluate my coaching ability. And then I had to do these lesson plans to, for them to just kind of see that I could continue their curriculum and continue this style of lesson plans. And what
1: was involved? What? kinds of things did you have to teach in level one and what kinds of things did you have to teach in level two?
2: So in level one, the dressage and the jumping was not as high as the level two. There's only three levels for the FEI and the Mm -hmm. third level is basically Olympic. Mm -hmm. Um, But the level one was I think show jumping up to a meter 20 and dressage I think was novice level dressage. And then the level two was uh, it's up to elementary level dressage so you have some kind of pre kind of extreme mo- movements in mm-hmm. there so we had to do counter canter and you know pirouettes but in the walk or you know stuff like this with our students on kind of you know elementary level horses so younger horses about six or seven years old
1: right.
2: and then show jumping up to up to a meter 30 for the courses
1: Very cool. Now, you mentioned in your email that you're from California, but you've traveled all over the world, and the accent in your voice doesn't quite sound like a (laughs) California girl. So she's been gone a long time. (laughs) Let's go back to the beginning. It's true. How did you get started with horses?
2: You know, it's funny because when I was, you know, growing up in California, I honestly, I couldn't afford horses. It was really expensive. My parents knew nothing about horses. They didn't know kind of where I got this from, um, but they supported me. So, you know, when I was about nine, I started taking lessons. I could only afford to ride two times a month, Oh wow. but I really loved it. So I would kind of pick stalls and brush horses and, you know, whatever I could to kind of help pay for the lessons. I guess my family probably thought I would grow out of it and discover boys, <laughs> um, but I never really did. You know, I, I went to an equestrian college in America it was the only one that I could find that didn't have math and history and science. <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted the horses. <laughs> I just wanted horses. Yeah, I just wanted to ride. And my goal was I want to work internationally.
0: Mm. And
2: my whole family had been military. So, you know, I grew up hearing their stories of traveling around. My dad kind of went to Italy and all kinds of crazy places for his training or, or whatnot. And mm. so, you know, I had this kind of impression when I was a kid that I really wanted to work abroad for some reason. So I ended up, yeah, getting work overseas and I just kind of didn't stop, you know, once I kind of made the leap across the sea, I just kind of met so many people from so many different places. After a while, I think I didn't have to actively look for work because people were just approaching me or, you know, offering a place to stay even, or, you know, just to visit. That's kind of how it started.
1: (laughs) And then you also mentioned that you've done show jumping in Romania and you've ridden in India and you even competed in the Mongol Derby. What was the order and (laughs) the (laughs) level of experiences as you as you hit those?
2: Yes, yeah, so the first job I had was actually in Belgium, working for a five-time Olympic rider. Um, and this woman is she's insane. She's an <laughs> eventing rider, and she was they're tough. <laughs> really, she was super hardcore. Yeah, she was hardcore, and I I really really liked the experience because, you know, she she really worked hard to achieve her kind of Olympic name. She wasn't kind of born rich and dating some, you know, horse Olympic guy, you know, she kind of (laughs) built her empire herself. So she was pretty cool. And the first month I I worked there, she was actually gone competing in the wag. So I was kind of a groom, you know, feeding horses and haying and all the dirty work. And then when she came back, and she kind of saw doing a good job, she just started giving me so many horses to ride that I had no time for anything else. (laughs) And after that, um, The work was, it was good, but it was really hard and it was pretty exhausting. And so I kind of left there and I went to Egypt (laughs) and I stayed in Egypt. This was actually during the revolution. The day the revolution started, January 25th, 2011, was the day my flight landed in Cairo. (laughs) So I actually was there for the entire thing.
1: Did the revolution impact your experience there? Was it... Crazy? Oh, big time.
2: Yeah, big time. Um, Actually, the first month, my mom had a heart attack because the internet and the phone and everything was cut off. So she couldn't Mm. contact me to find out. And she was just watching the news and all the chaos that was happening. But she knew, you know, I'm clever, and I would figure it out and contact her when I could. (laughs) And I think, I think about halfway through my boss at the time, he kind of somehow got some kind of card that he could make an international call So I was able to contact her, and I was just kind of like, hey, Mom, I'm still alive. Anyways, (laughs) how are you? Yeah, back to work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Got to (laughs) go. You know, I actually learned to speak Egyptian Arabic because I was just in the stables. I couldn't really leave the first month because there was a curfew, and there was—in the entire country, there was no police. There was military, but, you know, they weren't really doing anything. (laughs) Um, They wouldn't really step in and interfere, so— you know for me I'm blonde and I kind of stand out I'm quite tall so the first month I just didn't really leave the stables and most of the grooms had gone back to be with their family so I had two grooms and 40 horses oh my god and I wow. needed yeah I had to just make sure that they were all getting water and food and that they were getting out of their their stalls wow. and wow. that they were you know getting exercised and brushed and So, yeah, I had kind of a lot of responsibility. And then also because none of them spoke any English, you know, I had nothing better to do. So I would just sit in the barn all day, even, you know, in the evenings. And I would just kind of listen to the grooms talking and I would just point at stuff, you know, (laughs) and ask them, like, what is this? (laughs) How do you say this? (laughs) Yeah, they would reply, you know, the Arabic word. And eventually, you know, I was able to speak their language And I was kind of, yeah, just doing a lot of stuff. After a month, you know, the revolution kind of died down and things for Egyptians went back to pretty much normal. There was a lot of kind of chaos that happened in the country, but Egyptians were kind of tired of the chaos. And they just were so excited, like when I would go around town, they were so excited to see, you know, they thought I was a tourist. And they were like, oh, yay, (laughs) they're coming back, you know. (laughs) So, you know, they were just so friendly and nice to me.
1: And, what, and had you gone there to train horses or or people?
2: I was coaching, so I would ride horses in the morning. I think I rode about five horses every morning. And then in the evening, I would give lessons. And because it's Egypt, you know, it's a desert country, it's really hot. So there's this mm-hmm. big gap during the day where you just can't go outside, really, because right. um, it's so hot. So, you know, I would manage the grooms and, like I said, be sure the horses have water and that they're getting brushed and, you know, basic things it was a show jumping stables. Um, so we had a lot of jumping horses and I was in charge of a lot of the clients, let's say the fancy imported horses from Mm -hmm. Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. so I was kind of riding some of those and giving lessons. And then I was also getting lessons from the guy who owned the facility who was at the time an FEI level two. And he now recently got his FEI level three. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, getting some lessons from him and, and this kind of thing, so
0: in a in a stable like that, is it a, is that was there a predominant breed of horse used
2: well, for the for the lessons with kids, to be honest, they were kind of we call them pyramid horses <laughs> horses that he sort of rescued from a lot of the kind of Egyptians who try and get money from tourists. You know they have these horses, and they're just kind of a mixture of arabians and whatever they can find, you know. Mm-hmm. But they don't really treat the horses very well, to be honest. And a lot of them are malnourished. So he would kind of rescue some of those. We would fatten them up and obviously check to be sure that they're rideable and, and nice and everything. Mm-hmm. And and then we would let the kind of kids or the younger students or the beginners ride those. As far as the jumping horses, they were all imported warm bloods from Europe. They had been chosen by the kind of the guy who owned the stable. So he kind of went to Europe found the horses, decided that they were nice, and then brought them over. Um, So they were kind of some customer horses and then also some horses for the stables.
1: You mentioned how expensive it was to ride when you were growing up in California. Do only the wealthy ride in Egypt, or is it can can young poor people (laughs) ride?
2: Well, here's the thing. There's a big gap between rich and poor people in places like Egypt and India. It's not the same like in America, you know. Honestly, you know, there's people in America, and they have iPhones, but they call themselves poor. But, you know, in Egypt, that that doesn't exist. So when I say poor, um, usually, like the grooms, for example, they are uneducated. Um, Even in their own Arabic language, they cannot read and write. You know, they've never been to school, especially the girls. The girls especially do not go to school, the, the low class, let's say. And the wealthy, it's mostly like family money. So it's, you know, from generations and generations, their family has had this wealth. So they're somewhat westernized. And yeah, but there is a huge gap between the wealthy and the poor. In India and in Egypt and these kind of um, places, it's only the wealthy that are riding. And the poor, you don't find kind of riding. So we... The grooms and stuff, you know, they would just sort of care for the horses, but they, but they also, you know, they don't know what the purpose is, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> unless you're going to buy fruit and vegetables, why would you ride a horse, yeah. you know? <laughs> um So they just kind of thought it was funny, I think, you know, yeah. especially you know me because I'm like I said a blonde, and at the time I was uh, I think 21, 22 years old. Yeah, they just thought it was kind of hilarious, like oh, girl riding horses. <laughs>
1: My my perception of Egypt may be stuck in the uh, road movies of <laughs> Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, so what's a Marwari horse?
2: Yeah, so in India, the Marwari horse is the kind of local breed. And I'm sure a lot of uh, your listeners would have seen pictures of them. They have those cute little ears that kind of at the top touch each other. Oh, yes, um, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I, I had seen pictures of these when I was little, and I always thought they were really cute, their little ears touching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so when I went to India, you know, I knew that this breed only exists in in Asia, um, especially in India. They're not actually allowed to be exported from India. Like I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, I actually know that some Indians were, let's say, finding ways of importing the horses. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know that there are some people that have marwaris outside of India. You know, it is supposed to be the rule that, you know, these marwaris can't leave India. So I never really saw any outside of India. And they're they're actually a really remarkable breed. They're pretty sturdy. They're not too big, but they can be pretty chunky. You know, they're pretty, they <laughs> were bred for, yeah, they're pretty stout. They're bred for war. Uh, they call them like the Mughals coming from kind of Afghanistan down through northern India. When they were kind of conquering the Indians, they kind of mixed their Persian horses with kind of the local horses. Ooh. And so they, you know, kind of bred them for these war purposes. They are gated, so they do have a kind of special trot, let's say. Yeah, they're absolutely adorable with their little ears, especially babies. They're just really cute. <laughs> like stuffed toys. <laughs> they're Yeah, they're just so cute.
1: <laughs> I, do there, are there any special behavioral characteristics?
2: You know, I worked with a lot of them. I was starting a riding club in northern India in Punjab, in um, a place where there were no white people. There were no foreigners. There were no tourists going there. I had been living in India for long enough that you know, there's not really an internet kind of, people have internet, but it's still new there. So you don't find riding clubs, you know, by a Google search in India. (laughs) But when I kind of landed in India, there's only so many stables north, south, east, west, you know, in the entire country. So I went to one kind of club, and then just words spread like fire. And everyone knew that there was some American girl and that she was pretty good with horses. So I kept getting a lot of kind of offers. And every time I thought I was going to leave India, I would just get another kind of call at another offer. And I was like, Oh, I guess I can stay. You know, <laughs> um, So I went and this guy had mostly Marwari horses and also some, they're called Sindhi horses. They come from Pakistan. They're very similar to the Marwaris, but the, okay, this is my very like Just talking about the ears, because that's what I'm most interested in. (laughs) Their (laughs) ears aren't as curvy, let's say, Um, but they're also pretty stout. They use them also for war. And, you know, the Marwaris and these Sydney horses, they train them for these dancing kind of this. I mean, it's like the Piaf, but they -hmm. say it's dancing, you know. And he was kind of breeding these horses. And so I got to work a lot with the stallions and then the mares. None of them had been broke so I had to break all the mares because he, wanted, a, he yeah. wanted to make a riding school. So I got to ride. I think there was 70 horses in this table, and I was okay. training all of them um, because <laughs> oh only gosh. five had ever been ridden before. <laughs> <laughs> That's <So>, job <jump> security. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I ended up – I mean, obviously, I couldn't do it all, so I had to train – The grooms to kind of help me break in the horses, just get them some miles under them, you know. The thing that they're really, really kind of good at is endurance. Mm -hmm. They're really good at long distances, you know. That's why they, the Mughals and stuff, were able to kind of come into the country and kind of conquer the places that they did was because you know the horses were just so hardy and able to go for long distances they they were pretty calm personalities some of them are you know little fire breathing dragons but in a really (laughs) innocent kind of cute way yeah I really liked their personalities you know they were but also you know because of the life that they have in India they don't necessarily get very good treatment um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of places so I think that they just kind of developed in their own personality too, based on, you know, their surroundings and all the noise and all the people and everything. So they're just kind of chill, I
0: think. Yeah. Speaking of endurance, I am just fascinated by that Mongol Derby and you wrote in it. Yep. <laughs> and that had to have been quite an experience.
2: You know, when I was living in India... I don't know why I thought I needed more of a challenge, um, but I. <laughs> 70 horses to break. <laughs> I know, yeah, uh, and so I found out about the Mongol Derby and I signed up for it. I've always dreamed of riding horses in Mongolia, and riding these little Mongolian horses. So when I kind of saw this opportunity, I just I just had to do it. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I knew, you know, I was living in India and I was eating, you know, the local street food. I was like, okay, I can digest steel at this point. So (laughs) as long as I don't fall off the horses, I think I'll kind of manage Mongolia, you know. Yeah, I went to Mongolia. It took 10 10 days for me to finish I think the fast. I think the fastest rider, uh, the year that I did it, did it in eight days. And so I did ride to all of the stations without any assistance. And I started the derby, you know, I had been traveling solo for a long time. So I started the derby with this kind of thought that, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to be some solo girl and kind of conquer this, you know, challenge.
1: <laughs> Show and the then, world what I've got. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: And I'm super tough. And day three was just awful.
1: It was really awful.
2: <laughs> You know, you're just riding so hard and so many days in a row and, you know, you're eating the local food and a lot of people started to get kind of food sickness at that point, which I was fine with, you know, like I said, living in India. So I didn't have any sicknesses, but just my body was just shattered. You know, it was just breaking down. Do most people have support people? So there are vehicles with support crew, but there's only a few of them. And there was 48 riders the year that Mm -hmm. I did it. And, you know, the track kind of gets spread out. So if you fall in between stations or get injured severely and you need medical help, we had a little kind of spot tracker on us so we could push the emergency help button. But you don't know, they might take six hours to come and find you, you know, (laughs) it's Mongolia. (laughs) So, you know, you're pretty much on your own and you have to kind of rely on your wit and sources to kind of get by, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I think the one advantage, like I said, was because I've been traveling so much, I knew how to deal with the locals. So I ended up spending most of the nights not at the kind of horse station gurs that they had assigned. So most of the derbiers kind of would ride to those stations and spend the night and then ride on the next day. If I arrived at a ger and I still had an hour of you know day- daylight before the curfew, I was totally confident and happy to just ride my horse. And I knew I would, you know, stumble onto some random nomadic family and kind of talk my way into their home (laughs) for the night.
1: Very good.
2: (laughs) I appreciated that much more. But, yeah, what really saved me was that, you know, after day three, when I was just having a miserable kind Mm. of day, I ended up finding another rider from France and he was also a show jumper, so his riding style was quite similar to me. So we ended up teaming up and, and riding together, and we ended up finishing together.
0: That's oh, so wonderful.
2: So, yeah, it was kind of a, a nice adventure to share with somebody, and that had been kind of a new experience to me because I was a Little Miss, you know, solo,
1: at a point <laughs> to prove, you know. What fascinated me the most about the Mongol Derby is that at each station, you had a string of horses that you had to pick from. Did you have a certain criteria you were looking for in a, in a horse?
2: <laughs> yeah, so actually, I was very <laughs> clever. <laughs> when I when I went to Mongolia, I went there a few days early, and I hung around the city. I just kind of wandered around, and I met some local Mongolian people, and the first thing that I asked them, I said, you need to tell me how to say in Mongolian, and Madaban. Okay, these are the only words I know how to say in Mongolian. What it means is, Give me your fastest horse. (laughs) (laughs) So when I went to a horse station, I would look at the men, and you could tell, there's like a group of men, but you can tell who is kind of the man in charge. Mm -hmm. And I would go straight to him, look him in his eyes, and say, Horten mud, and Madaban. And the look (laughs) that he would give me, (laughs) I actually had, you know, it's kind of 50-50 in Mongolia because I'm a woman. Some of the men, they're like, oh, yeah, okay, let's give her an interesting pony. And then others are kind of like, nah, she's a girl, give her a kind of lazy horse, mm-hmm. right? but I had one horse station where there was this guy, and I don't know, I told him Horton mud and Madaban, and I don't know, he looked quite impressed, so he kind of, <laughs> him and his family, they followed me into the gur I went to like repack on water, and mm-hmm. kind of shovel some food in my mouth, and you know when you don't speak the language, but you just know when somebody's talking about you? Right. Well, right. I had that, I was sitting in the gur and I just knew that they were talking about me, And they were sizing me up, and, like, I just knew. And luckily there had been a translator sitting in the ger, and I asked him, you know, hey, what are they they talking about? And he's like, oh, yeah, they're talking about you. I was like, okay, I know that, but, like, what are they saying? (laughs) What about? (laughs) Yeah, so he asks them, and the guy's like, I have a special pony for you. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, you know, I'm like... I have no idea what a special pony is, you know, whatever. Good, bad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is it good? What? So I kind of follow him out, and he brings to me, it looks like a donkey. I mean, it's (laughs) small, brown, it's not very pretty, to be honest. It doesn't even have any white markings, so I can't even tell that horse apart from any others, you know what I mean? And I'm just kind of like, really? This is your special pony? (laughs) And, you know, I'm like, okay, whatever. So I check my GPS kind of before I get on because I know that once I'm on, most of the time (laughs) you don't have brakes and you can't kind of figure that out. So I check my GPS, figure out somewhat which direction I have to bolt into, you know. (laughs) I kind of hurl myself on this horse. And before I even get my feet in the stirrups, this horse is, he's just gone. And he had so much power and force behind his strides I've never in my life ridden another horse like this one. I mean, he was running with his whole heart, wow. and he was so fast, I ended up passing flying by everybody, and I couldn't stop him, of course. I had no steering no brakes. I just kind of went with it. he was He was really the fastest pony that i that I've ever sat on, so he dragged me, I think forty kilometers oh all God. the way to the next station. And it was spectacular. I I loved this pony. (laughs) How amazing. How amazing.
1: (laughs) And he, he maintained that pace the whole distance.
2: He did. I ended up halfway through, I couldn't figure out, I, you know, lost my bearings and I needed to check my GPS. Well, he was kind of just racing so fast that the... My eyes were streaming with tears almost, and my helmet was kind of flying back and, you know, all this stuff. And my teammate I had been separated from so long ago. So I was like, okay, I need to kind of stop this horse and figure out which direction I need to run into. (laughs) So I picked the highest mountain I could find and just pointed him at it. And he ran to the top of this mountain, and it was pretty steep. Towards the top, he started huffing and puffing and kind of slowed down just enough that I could check. And actually, at that moment, I saw from my viewpoint in the (laughs) distance some riders riding in a certain direction, and it actually turned out to be my teammate. So I turned my pony towards them, and I couldn't get him to go slow down this mountain. So I was kind of (laughs) man from Snowy River almost, you know, just bolting down this really steep mountain. And I caught up to them, and luckily the mountain winded him enough (laughs) that the others could keep up with me but he was still I mean he was still like galloping so wow. we had to kind of exchange conversations while galloping you know? um but
1: yeah <laughs> the secretariat of mongol derby <laughs> yeah, horses. Exactly.
2: yeah yeah apparently he was their kind of nadam kind of racehorse which is their most treasured sport in, in mongolia so yeah
1: and you started a riding program in bhutan and that was the first writing program that they had there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't, I'm don't. i not even sure where Bhutan is. <laughs> yeah, you know, Bhutan I had never heard of
2: before either. Um, I was sitting in India, and I, I you know, India is a stressful place to live. And I just kind of wanted to get away. I was just sort of Googling countries nearby that I could, <laughs> you know, just disappear to for 10 days or something. I saw this picture of this temple it's a famous temple it's the tiger's nest temple and it's situated at the top of this mountain and this cliff side and it looks very majestic in the pictures and it's a buddhist temple so it looks you know architecturally it's just really really kind yeah, of pretty cool yeah. yeah very beautiful and something that i would never see in america um so i saw this picture and when i saw it i had this certainty inside me that i'm gonna see this temple With my own Mm. eyes. I had no idea how I was going to do this. And I started researching Bhutan. And apparently, it was kind of extremely difficult country to get into. You have to have government permission. They have a minimum requirement of like $300 a day Mm. that you have to spend in order to be there. I mean, the money goes to the people, you know, their free education and free medical care and, you know, the fixing of the roads and things like this. So it benefits the Bhutanese people. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I was getting an Indian kind of rupee salary. I didn't have $300 a day. And the more that I was kind of researching of Bhutan, I couldn't find any horses anywhere. Like, I just couldn't find anything, no information, nothing. And I found by chance, like a picture of a pony. It wasn't even like, a majestic picture it was like kind of <laughs> sad looking ponies you know and it said Bhutan so I just followed the link to the picture and I found some kind of email address somehow and I just randomly sent them a message like hey I'm a horse trainer and da, 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 and I'd love to come to Bhutan shot in the dark sort of and I got there, a message huh? yeah. yeah why not what do I have to lose and I got a message back within one week I was on a plane to Bhutan um, <laughs> they paid for everything And I was going to be there for a month. I was going to work for two weeks kind of with their ponies, with their horses. And then I was going to just get a free tour of the country for two weeks, which I thought was a pretty good deal. (laughs) You know, it was actually the pony picture was um, belonging to a kind of Bhutanese tour company that were interested in making a horse riding tour because they've seen, you know, pictures of course, they really like to go on horse riding holidays. Right. And, you know, no one was doing that in Bhutan. So they had this idea, but they didn't know how to do it. And then I just shot them this message at the right time at the right moment. And they're like, oh, my gosh, it's a sign. We have to do this now. <laughs> I really love Mongolia, but I think I have to say I like Bhutan more. <laughs> Bhutan oh. is just very special, especially, you know, the time that I went, it was actually in the off season. So it's kind of the monsoon season, which in Asia, it just means that it rains randomly. Favorite. Um, (laughs) it's nothing scary, but obviously, you know, it it can be kind of sunny one minute and then just pouring rain for 20 minutes and then it'll go away and then maybe it starts again. You know, it's just kind of unpredictable weather. So I went there in this kind of monsoon season and I was in kind of the highest point of monsoon season. So everywhere I went for the entire month I was there, there were no other foreigners. I was the only person (laughs) with blonde hairs. You know, they kind of arranged my hotel stays um, and they brought me to the horses. They had bought a bunch of tack in India, saddles and bridles and blankets and, you know, everything that they saw in a picture that a horse needs, (laughs) they bought So they had saddles, they had the ponies. Um the ponies in Bhutan, they're used as pack horses, but the Bhutanese people, I don't know why, they never it never occurred to them that you could ride a pony. Ride so they <laughs> would just yeah, they would just put their kind of heavy stuff on the ponies or yaks or you know whatever. And just kind of chased them with a stick up the mountains. (laughs) So the ponies were used to having weight on their backs, but they've never had, you know, like a bit in their mouth or or something like this. So, you know, when I got there, they had all these brand new saddles and bridles. And, you know, the the two guys were there that I was supposed to be training how to deal with the ponies and and whatnot. And they had been kind of cutting trails and paths and were really excited to show me all of the little trails that we were going to be doing over the over the two weeks. And
1: and was there a language barrier there, too?
2: Actually, because in Bhutan, it was kind of a tour company. So actually, they spoke really good English.
1: Oh, good. OK, well, you didn't have that to deal with.
2: <laughs> yeah, the main, the groom who lives with the ponies didn't speak any English. And he had to, you know, communicate with me with sign language. But he would watch really intently whatever I would do. And then if he had a question, you know, he could just kind of ask one of the other guys. And so we were able to translate and communicate with each other. And also I talk a lot with my hands, and I'm very, you know, from traveling around so much, so I'm, I'm kind of demonstrating everything anyways. Right. So, yeah, we didn't really have any, any language issues. But, yeah, I, I asked them, you know, okay, can you guys show me how to saddle up the horse? And they, you know, I actually took a picture of their attempt at bridling because it was just <laughs> so cleverly wrong that <laughs> I myself could never have made it that wrong but still work. <laughs> And it was pretty awesome. So I took a picture of it. And, you know, I was just kind of like laughing, like, wow, that's Mm. (laughs) art, actually. How'd you do that? (laughs) Yeah, wow. (laughs) I didn't know bridles could do that. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so I showed them the correct way. (laughs) And then how to saddle the ponies. And then I think they started with eight ponies or something like that when I was there. And now they have, I think, 12 ponies. But, yeah, so we rode around for for a week or so in different trails and up and down in the Himalayas. And a lot of it, because it is very mountainy, rocky terrain, you are walking for most of it. But I did have one pony that I really liked, and actually the locals, so in the Bhutanese language, his name was Japo, which means like rooster. And uh-huh. they named him that because they thought he was the ugliest pony. They were like, no, he's not <laughs> a nice pony. Because in Bhutan, in their culture, the black horse is like the very elite kind of color horse. So they had a black one that they were like worshipping. And he was nice, but he wasn't as fun to ride as this rooster pony. <laughs> and of course, to me, this pony was really cute. Um, he was kind of golden and had a flaxen mane and tail. He's like every little girl's dream, you know, right. dream Aww, pony. My and little pony. So, yeah. So I was like, no, this pony is he, he has a new name now. His name is Prince. <laughs> and, of course, all of the grooms and all of the men in the beginning were kind of like, no, no, he's a rooster. He's he's not that nice. And then, you know, I kind of was riding him every day and cantering him around majestically in the fields. And by the end of the week, all of them were asking me permission to ride Prince <laughs> because they all wanted to ride this fancy pony. Wow. Pretty <laughs> so it, cool. was, yeah, it was really cute to kind of uh. see the mentality of the men changing and yeah you know it's it's a really fun experience and
0: oh you have just had quite a life and and we understand that now you spend some time doing public speaking with regard to women empowerment
2: yeah so one of the I think light bulb moments actually happened in Bhutan because I had, I was staying in a homestay with a family and there were these two women. uh, I think they must've been just a couple of years younger than me, but around my age at the time. And they really loved having a blonde girl to play Barbie with. So they dressed me up in their (laughs) local clothes and took me to the temple and having girly talks and stuff. You know, they knew why I was there kind of to train all of the men with these horses. And one of the girls, she just kind of looked at me and she said, you know, Crystal, I never even knew that girls could ride horses. And also, it never occurred to me that you could actually work with horses and make money, mm. a living out of this. And when she said that, I was just kind of, wow. Mm. Yeah. You yeah. know, because in, in America, even, a lot of my family, they used to think, you know, oh, get a real job, kind of, you know. I started um, traveling around. So, you know, after a while, they decided horses is a real job. But, you know, from (laughs) these kind of women's perspective in India and in Egypt and Bhutan and these places, you know, the more that I thought about, yeah, you know, the girls, they really just weren't riding. You know, it was mostly men. And, you know, it's because horses was used for the military. And that's very obviously men are in the military. I started just really trying to just get girls to ride and not just getting girls to ride, but to kind of earn respect for myself from these kind of men. Because in the beginning when they would see me, you know, they were just kind of like, Oh, she's a woman. She can't ride. Why is she here? And especially, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these kind of military style in India, for example, honestly, they would just kind of whip the horse and make the horse do it. You know, they would force Mm -hmm. the horse and I'm, I'm a woman. I, I'm not very strong. I'm nowhere near as strong as as a man is, definitely I'm not going to wrestle with horse. So I have to actually communicate with the horse and get them to do it. And, you know, I would kind of work with really difficult horses. For example, one of the situations in India, they were trying to, you know, get the farrier to put shoes on one of the mares and she'd never had shoes on before. So she's leaping around and fire breathing kind of demon horse. Mm -hmm. And the men just couldn't cope with that. And they were terrified of her. So I, took her from them and started just playing with her you know getting her to follow me back back up or go forward a step and then back or stop or you know just kind of moving her around use Um, her brain (laughs) yeah exactly just think and you know after 10 minutes of playing with her she stood perfect for the farrier and the men were just staring at me like how did she do that because Mm -hmm. this horse was just trying to kill them five minutes ago and now she was like a kitten in their brains, you have to kind of whip the horse or beat it or, you know, as if that's going to make it calm down. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's genuinely what they thought. They thought you have to force the horse to do this stuff. And it didn't even occur to them that you could actually ask the horse to do it nicely. (laughs) So, you know, I just started to see the mentality of the men also changing. And I think that in itself to me was really rewarding because suddenly it it was possible that girls could ride. Right. It would change their view of, of yeah. even the women in their own countries. And exactly. Their right. Exactly. Yeah. It was a very interesting experience. And so that's definitely something that I am passionate about. And I try and talk about a lot and share. And, you know, even if I'm not traveling with horses, let's say, and I'm traveling, you know, it's still really interesting to get these men thinking or get these women to kind of see by example, even. It is possible. Right.
1: I have one other question as we kind of wind this this up a little bit. You've traveled the whole world dealing with horses pretty much by yourself, and yet you... You finally got married. I understand in England. Yeah, <laughs> yeah finally. I'm sure he's. A, I'm sure he's a horseman, right? Or
2: okay,
0: actually, you you... Find... <laughs> she has settled down a
1: bit.
2: <laughs> well, you know that's that's what everyone assumes, and then I'm like dragging him around to all these around. countries now. He's not a
1: horseman. How, how did that happen? Yeah.
2: Last year I was like, okay, I've been doing traveling with horses. Let's let's try some other horsepower. So I bought. <laughs> I bought a crappy car from England, and (laughs) I attempted to drive it to Mongolia. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Along the way, I in Azerbaijan, this is a country, Azerbaijan, (laughs) I actually met my now husband. He's German. I was kind of waiting for a ferry boat to cross the Caspian Sea to try and get into Turkmenistan and i had been sleeping in my car for 5 days at this point no shower no oh, kind of air conditioning it's a desert country you know i was pretty grumpy you were a and, dream boat <laughs> yeah exactly and he just kind of for some reason he just pulls up and decides to walk up directly to me and ask me hey where's the ferry boat <laughs> and um i wasn't very friendly with him, but I was somewhat helpful. But of course, he fell in love immediately and just proceeded to chase me for about 10 countries. Oh, wow. <laughs> my car ended up, the engine exploded in in between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And I was determined to fix my little pink, I called her the pink yak. Um, <laughs> so I was determined not to leave her. So he, he had to continue on because he had a visa in Russia that was going to expire. So he was trying to beg me to go with him. And I was like, no. And
1: And leave the pink yak.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I can't leave the pink yak. (laughs) And so I miraculously found after 12 days in Oshkirkistan, I found a new engine and I ended up driving to the finish. And I just missed him by two days. We ended up meeting again. So I flew to Moscow because he was driving through Russia back home to Germany. I flew to Moscow and met him and kind of the other people that we had all been convoying with. We had a little kind of group. And (laughs) so I just met him just for the day because I had a flight back to America. And then, you know, we hung out and then drove me to the airport and said goodbye. And I ended up having to go back to Europe because of this FEI Level 2. I got accepted into it. It was two weeks after I finished the rally. But I didn't know that I was accepted into it. My kind of tutor sort of messaged me when I made it back to America, like, hey, when are you coming to Greece? You're accepted. And I was like, oh, <laughs> well, darn, I was just Uh-oh. there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, huh, OK. could have driven. I guess, exactly, I know. So I kind of made a last minute flight. I booked just kind of the cheapest sort of round trip I could find. So I flew to Greece and then from Greece, like I did my little kind of course, and then from Greece, I had to fly from brussels back to america but i had kind of planned a night in brussels i had planned to maybe meet up with some friends but then you know they were busy so i was like okay i'll just explore the city by myself and sure enough he f- shows up <laughs> he drove <laughs> six hours um, just to meet me Aww. and he convinced me to go to germany with him so i ended up going to germany and then he got this job in england and then the rest is history oh.
1: How romantic! Oh, that is. Yeah. I think I think
0: you need to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: I. You know, I I am in process of writing oh, a book. Good. Um You know, there's so much stuff to like share and and yes. things that oh, yeah. that I can talk about that I just kind of get so overwhelmed <laughs> and excited that I just don't write anything. <laughs> but yes, I am I am um, kind of in process, let's say, of writing a book.
1: You yeah. still do clinics in the United States and you travel back and forth, I understand. If people want to find out more about your fascinating life and if they need some help with their their horses, how can people get a hold of you?
2: Yeah, so I have my, for equestrian reasons, I have a website, just Crystal Kelly or even on Facebook. I have a little Facebook page, Crystal Kelly, and it's okay. my name, which is K-R-Y-S-T-A-L dash Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y dot com. And then as far as my travels, you know, I am organizing some trips. I'm organizing a horse riding adventure to Bhutan next year. And um, I'm also going <laughs> to possibly do a horse riding yoga thing in Bali. And then I have a little pink, a pink mini. It's a 1989 classic car. <laughs> so I have that here in England and I kind of enjoy driving people around. So I'm kind of doing different things. I mean, I do go back and forth to America quite a lot. Uh, the travel website is ChrisColumbusTravel.com. And again, it's Chris with a K and Columbus with a K, just because that's my name. So
1: right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll have those links in the show notes for us, too. This is fascinating. We could talk to you for a considerably longer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I'm happy to to tell stories and Definitely, definitely. I, I love sharing uh, with others and, and also hearing from them, you know, their stories. So,
1: yeah. You did mention that some of the, the travel difficulties, and, but you're, you're doing travel experiences. Is it hard moving from country to country like that?
2: You know, in the beginning, I think it's quite funny because when I left America the first time, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like packing just big bottles of shampoos and conditioners. And like, (laughs) I just couldn't understand like weird European shampoos. No, I have to bring my American ones, you know? (laughs) So you know, in the beginning, it was definitely kind of trial and error. And I, I used to spend way too much money on flights and, you know, kind of the hassle of it, especially because I had so much stuff in my bags or, you know, whatever it was. And I made kind of visa mistakes in the beginning. Once you kind of figure it out and once you realize, like, hey, you probably don't need that much stuff, (laughs) you know, it's actually much easier than people think. And really, all you have to do is just book a ticket, like a flight or buy a crappy car or whatever, but, like, (laughs) just go. And really, it's as easy as that. Yeah, it's it's go quite with the easy. Flow, huh? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and you don't even have to plan so much. I mean, you know, I understand like when you arrive maybe you want a hotel to sleep for the night or you know whatever. But there's so much internet resources and things nowadays like you can book a hotel the night before. You stay in a place right. or right. you know, and it's really nice to just kind of show up and you know, I discover, you know, if I go to a new city they have free walking tours that I didn't know about oh. or, you know, there's just all kinds of stuff that if mm. I had pre-booked everything, you know, I wouldn't have been able to find all that other cool stuff. Yeah, for me, it's it's actually much easier now. But definitely in the beginning, I, I used to make a lot of silly mistakes. and
0: We always get better the more we do something. Exactly. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's a learning process.
0: <laughs> this has just been a ton of fun, Crystal. Thanks for
1: joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. Crystal seems like a great example to women everywhere. She sure leads a full life. She does. She has some great stories,
0: great adventures, and doesn't let being a girl stop her from doing anything.
1: That's right. Well, that'll do it for this show. Thanks to Crystal Kelly for coming on and telling us about her life with horses.
0: Use the Apple Podcast app to subscribe to the Well Podcast, and you'll never miss an episode. You can also subscribe on Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. They're all free there and all are on WoolPodcast.com.
1: Please visit WoePodcast.com and sign up for our emails to stay up to date. Have a suggestion for a guest, a comment, or like Crystal, if you've got an exciting life and you want to talk about it, email me at john at WoePodcast.com. The Woe Podcast is produced by John and Renee Hare with occasional research support from Robin Kane and support from you, our listeners. If you would like to support the show, visit woepodcast.com and simply click on the Patreon button. Thanks again for listening to the podcast and sharing it with your riding buddies.
0: Until next time, go have some fun with your horses.
1: Bye-bye, everybody.
0: Take three.
3: <laughs> okay. <Go>. Welcome.
1: <laughs> I, I thought to... you I thought you were waiting no.
3: for me. <laughs>